Well, good morning to all of you. I hope you're having a great, great morning. It is, uh, I guess, spring in Tennessee, so your cars are green with pollen, and you don't know if you're going to wake up and need your down jacket or shorts right now. That's springtime, isn't it? There, but I tell you, there's some really neat things going on, and I, I'm so encouraged by seeing all the gospel engagements that you guys are putting in week by week. And I'm so encouraged by seeing what God's going to do through our foundations campaign as we seek uh, to relieve some debt. And I was thinking a little bit about our gospel engagements this week. And, you know, I had, I had two very uh, quick reminders of something that one of our members uh, said a long time ago. We talked about uh, in, in the beginning of our vision casting process that we believed that we would be a church that would be sending out its best people all around the world that God would be calling them out and leading them to different places. And some of you will remember John and Sarah Roberts, who meant so much to us here now, are living out west, uh, relocated with a job. And they were part of our Vision Sunday. We had a video from them. And John said something that really grabbed my heart that week when, uh, when we showed that video. He said that, that we need to be reminded of the fact that our time with people is really short. You know, and, and what he was saying is, I don't necessarily mean that they're going to die, and I, but, but that they're going to be life things that, that happen, that, that keep your time from being all that you would hope it could be with someone else. And I was thinking about that this week. I had two reminders of why gospel engagements are so important. Some of our friends are moving. Uh, friends in our neighborhood, they're moving. And you know, you're, you, you never know when somebody's going to be called away, different place, and, and God just, just takes that opportunity of influence and he changes it a little bit because they're not around uh, to be with you like that. And then somebody that I had been engaging with uh, no longer works where I had been engaging with them. You know, they're not, they're not there anymore. And so it's just an interesting reminder for us all the time that the present is so valuable. The present time that you have as we get ready for Easter, it's so valuable to be inviting people and engaging them with the gospel. And remember what we say a gospel engagement is. It's just when we take a moment and inject Jesus into the relationship. That's it. The Holy Spirit does the work, right? The Holy Spirit is convicting people all the time. So you pray with a coworker, gospel engagement. You invited somebody to church, it's a gospel engagement. You shared your story with someone or shared Christ with someone, that's a gospel engagement. And we need to be about the master's business. Well, you know, this week we're continuing our series in what we're calling the red thread. And last week we took some time to examine how the red, thread, the red thread was actually started. And you may remember that we started seeing the red thread right after creation. And when we talk about the red thread, what we're looking at is that, that, that thread that runs all the way through the Bible that's talking about the cross of Christ, the blood of Jesus shed for us. And we kind of said it like this last week, that Easter didn't happen on a weekend, right? It had been, it had been something that God was doing for eternity. It, it wasn't just one event. It was something that God had been talking about and, and people had been looking for and God had, had used prophets to prophesy that these things were going to happen. God was outlining a plan to save us all from our sins from the very beginning. In our sermon series last week, we saw how life changed instantly for all mankind when Adam and Eve sinned. Some things were brought into the world that up until that point had never existed, right? There, there had only been a world that was blessed, and now the world had curse in it as well. And there were things like the curse of pain and childbearing. There were things like the curse of, of working the ground that was going to be difficult, toiling and sweating in our labor. But the greatest thing that we saw that entered in our lives through sin was death. Death and fear. They had never existed until sin entered the world. And now we see that on full display. And we saw the prophecy last week that there would be one who would bruise 
the heel, right? And that was Satan was going to bruise the heel, but there would be one who would crush his head, bruise his head. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that first messianic prophecy of God doing something to make our relationship right. Well, today we're in the book of Genesis again. As we look at one of the most amazing and exciting stories in all of the Old Testament, turn to Genesis 22. We're going to see today the story of how God decided to do something incredible and give us a substitute. How God provides. When God decided that he was ready to make a people for himself, he did it through a person. That person's name was Abraham. Abraham was maybe no more uh, different than you or I would be different from one another. Uh, but Abraham was special in the sense that God placed his hand upon Abraham. He and his wife Sarah had been married for a long time. They'd been unable to conceive a child and they were living kind of with that aching emptiness in their hearts when God came and spoke to him and said, I want you to leave your land, you and your wife, and I'm going to do something amazing with you. And Abraham began to follow God. And then God appeared to him and said, you're going to conceive. Y'all are going to have a kid. And Abraham said, look, this is, this is all great and everything, but there's no way that this is going to happen. I'm well past the age when I should be able uh, to have a child. My wife is certainly past the age of childbearing years. How are you going to do this, God? And God said, don't worry, I'm going to do something amazing in your life. Not only am I going to give you a child, but I'm going to make a nation out of you. Now, that's a, a, an incredible promise to make someone that has no children, right? That there's going to be a nation come forth from you. And then he said, and all of the nations of the world are going to be blessed in your line. That, that's an amazing thing to think about. Now, I don't know uh, about you, but uh, I, I never felt the weight of any of those things when we were expecting our children. I mean, I just didn't. Uh, I, I never felt uh, that a nation was going to be born out of my children. I never felt like God was going to bless the entire world through my child. So there's a lot riding on that and all this responsibility that Abraham must have felt. And he's nearing 100 years old. I mean, this is not somebody who's in prime child raising years. Those promises didn't happen immediately, did they? It took years for God to deliver on the promise. He waited more than 20 years for that to happen. And I'm sure you can imagine the joy that would have filled these parents' hearts after they'd been waiting and waiting and, and God had given this promise and then it's like he goes silent and wh where are you going to fulfill the promise, Lord? And all of a sudden a baby boy is born. I can imagine them thinking about this boy. How is God going to address this issue of blessing the nations through this child? Is, is it because he's going to be wealthy? Is it because he's going to be handsome? Is it because he's going to be smarter than everyone else? Is it because he's going to be a king over a nation? They were thinking about all of these things. Maybe they were even thinking back to the curse that had been given Adam and Eve. Is he the one that's going to finally give the death blow to the one who had tempted us? Oh, it must have been fun watching him grow, wondering about all of those things. Abraham certainly would have had him out in the fields, watching his dad worked the farm, watching how he raised animals, watching how he was growing things. He would have sat on his dad's knee, I imagine, learning these things. He would have played under the cover of a tent in those cold nights with his mother, being sheltered from those desert winds. And then everything changed because one day God spoke to Abraham again. Verse 1. Genesis 22. Now it came about after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. 
He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Just like he always did, Abraham answered the Lord. With that open-ended way, he answered him, here I am. In other words, whatever you want to do, here I am. Speak, tell me what to do. You've told me to leave my family before and I did. Whatever you say, here I am. But this was bigger than when God called him to leave everything he'd ever known in his home country. Because now God's speaking to him about his son. It was bigger than when he had been told to go rescue his nephew from invading kings and had to fight a battle. That seemed small in comparison to what God was speaking to him now. This seemed cruel, and yet Abraham, knowing God and not knowing what else he could do, did the only thing he had learned to do with his entire life. Here I am, and he started doing what God told him to do. It's interesting. He rose early grabbing two of his servants and saying, let's go, we've got to do this. And then you have to wonder, maybe, did he tell Sarah where they were going? Did he sit down with Sarah after that dreadful night of sleep that maybe he didn't sleep in these fitful moments as he's turning all of these things over in his mind and he just might have sat there and, and maybe thought, I shouldn't even tell her. We'll be back. Got somewhere to go tomorrow. And then you can imagine him, can't you? pulling the ax out and getting logs and with every swing of the ax, thinking, God, what are you doing? How, how could you do this to me, Lord? How could it be that you've given me all these promises and I can imagine that that was a chore of monumental proportions. Maybe as he split that wood, he hoped God would speak again and say, just kidding. I'm glad you were willing to do it, but just hold up. Look at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and he saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. The place that Abraham saw was a place called Moriah, Mount Moriah. It's an interesting place because it figures again and again in the story of the scripture. Later, that very spot would be where Solomon, the great king, would build the temple where sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for years would take place. Interestingly enough, it would be the place where the passion of the Christ would take place, where Jesus would be brought to the temple and, and he would be learning there but then he would be living in and around the temple and finally the priest who ran the temple on that very spot would be the ones who would take him to Pilate. And the priest who would guard that temple were the ones responsible for his execution. When Abraham sees this significant place, he sees this land, this mountain, he does something amazing. He makes a faith declaration 
I don't know when he arrived at this great faith declaration or this place of faith. Maybe it was through the night as God had told him, I want you to go do this, and he was sleeping. Maybe it was when he was doing the chores, preparing, or maybe it was on that three-day journey as they were walking, and he was waiting on God to speak. But something changed, and I don't know what happened from the time that God spoke to him until they arrived, but God had changed Abraham's mind. And Abraham makes this faith declaration, we're going over and we're coming back. I want you to think about that. We're going over and we're coming back. The lad and I, we're going to walk over here. We're going to worship the Lord and we will return to you. I mean, it's just an amazing thing. We're not sure exactly when it happened, but the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament gives us an interesting insight into this in chapter 11, verse 17. He says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Begotten. That's going to be an interesting word. We'll come back to it in a minute. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which he also received him, Isaac, back as a type. Abraham's faith journey had grown to such a place that he believed that God had ordered him to do something and yet the promises of God were all located in this son. And so if God had called him to do something, God could do something even like raise him from the dead. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? That's an amazing faith declaration to say, we're going over here, we're coming back. And the writer of Hebrews with divine insight understood that Abraham knew that God was not going to abandon one of his promises because God never does. But God was going to be faithful even if it meant raising him from the dead. You see, there were no other options. There was not another heir. Isaac didn't have a child yet. He wasn't married. There wasn't a grandson. It wasn't as if God was saying, yeah, I'm taking your son, but we're going to use your grandson. I mean, there was no other option. And so as we look back at Genesis chapter 22 and verse 6, I want you to see something. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they walked on together. Did you notice who carried the wood? Isaac is carrying the wood that is supposedly meant for him. This is a dark, dark moment, isn't it? And as they walked, Isaac has this revelation like, uh, Dad, we've done this before. I see that you have the fire. I see that you have the wood. Where where is the the lamb, God? Where's the lamb, Dad? Where is it? You, You don't have one. Where's that going to come from? And Abraham said something that that is just stunning to me. God would provide for himself a lamb. And this is interesting when we think about it because Abraham saw the offering as being commanded by God and he knew what he was supposed to do and he also believed something 
that, that maybe we wouldn't expect. He believed that God would provide the offering for himself. There's not many times in your life when something is required of you by someone or some entity that then they also provide for you. Like you're, you're finishing your taxes right now. Your CPA doesn't say you owe you know, a couple thousand dollars and the government has decided to take that on and just give you a gift, Right? When you go to the bank and, and they say, we're about to foreclose on your house and you owe $100,000, they don't say you owe $100,000 and we're giving it to you today. It, it just doesn't work that way. It, it doesn't happen in our lives when something is required, but God is different. Last week we learned that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It's impossible for us to be made righteous without God uh, uh, knowing that blood would be spilled, without God allowing that blood to be spilled, it doesn't happen. And the consequence of sin in our lives is death. God's law demands it. But just like Abraham, you and I have the opportunity to believe that God can and will do something to take care of our sin. God requires something, but what's amazing about God requiring something is that while God is requiring something, God is providing that. And we see this in verse 9. God will provide what he requires. Look at this. They came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar, arranged the wood, bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Again, every time God speaks to this man, here I am. In other words, what do you have to say? He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and beheld a ram behind him caught in the thicket by his horns. And he went and took the ram and offered up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. When this moment of truth had come, I always think back to a picture from the first Bible that I ever had. It was a little, maybe some of you guys will remember the little green living Bibles. I had a little green living Bible. And once in a while, there was a little picture in it. And there's this picture of Abraham with a knife like this ready to do it, and God speaking, stop, stop. God had provided just like Abraham had said, a ram caught in the thorns in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham names the place God will provide. It's an interesting name. You may have heard someone say this name of God, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. In the Old Testament, names were really important because they marked the occasion of something or revealed something. Isaac had a son called Jacob. He's called the Deceiver. That was his name. Here we get a glimpse of one of the revealed names of God so that we can understand a little bit more about God. As, as God is revealing things about himself, he often does it with the names that we're able to call him. God will provide. It's actually one of my favorite names in all of the scripture. God will provide. He will do it. God provides for us. God provides for us in ways that we often think about, like material blessings or material needs that we have in our lives. But God has provided for us spiritually as well. 
One of my other uh, favorite names, certainly maybe one of yours, is, is, is what the Hebrews call Jehovah Rapha, God my healer, right? That he's my healer, or El Shaddai, the God of the mountains. I love that one, right? I love that one in, in light of the fact that so many people used to go to the mountains to sacrifice. And when the psalmist says, I look to the hills, where does my help come from? What he's not saying is, I look to the mountains and get strength from it. What he's saying is, I look up there and I see all of these pagans sacrificing all around us, Lord. Where, where's my help going to come from? Is it from one of these pagan altars up there? And he says, no, my help comes from the Lord, El Shaddai. I looked at the mountains, the God of the mountains. But I love this name God will provide. If we look closely at this story, I think we see some of this red thread again emerging for us. And it points us to the cross of Christ because God is using this story to teach us some things about him and about ourselves. Now, it's always good if you really want to understand yourself, it's really important that you start with an understanding of God. We get that backwards sometimes. We think that if we focus on ourselves all the time, then we'll finally understand ourselves better. It'd be better for us to start with an understanding of God and who he is and what he has revealed to us, not only about him, but about us, so that we can have a fuller understanding. So let's start with this. I want you to see this name found where Abraham called this place, the Lord will provide. When, when Abraham had mentioned to Isaac, the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice, an offering, a lamb. It's interesting because Abraham believed that God would provide this. As we studied last week, we talked about the blood of sacrifices never being able to cleanse us from sin. They covered us. In the Old Testament, they sacrificed again and again and again, day in and day out. Why? To cover sins. Animals uh, were sacrificed in place of people to cover our sins, but Jesus became the perfect sacrifice. All of humanity was looking forward to a day when they would experience the cleansing from sin, where, where they wouldn't have to, to carry these stains in their lives anymore. And we need that. We're looking back towards it, but we need it as well because our lives have been marred and stained by sin. That's the reality of the life that we live. We have mistakes that we've made or times that we've been willfully disobedient to the Lord. And we need to be cleansed from that sin in our lives. As the book of Romans plainly states in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God was found in Christ Jesus our Lord as he died in our place. God could have required us to die for our sin. He, he should have required us to die for our sin. And yet God was gracious and he allowed Christ to die in our place. And John 3.16 is a verse that if you don't know it, you should know it. Because it speaks to the great love that God had for us when the, when the Bible says this through the Apostle John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Sound familiar, right? Abraham, take your only begotten son. Jesus came as the only begotten son of the Father. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In big theological terms... Christ dying in your place is what is known as the substitutionary atonement. Now, substitutionary is a little bit easier to understand, isn't it? That just means in my place, in your place. Atonement, if we just break that word down, means at one meant. 
It's a funny word, but it means to be reconciled to God. See, what sin does in our lives is it drives a wedge between us and the Lord. God is holy, and he will not allow us to live in sin and approach him. And so we have this broken relationship with the Lord that can only be fixed, only be bridged by death. But not just our death. That wouldn't be enough. We could pay for our sins with our death. But it was the death of Jesus Christ dying in our place. To make sure that we get this connection, it's interesting. John records John the Baptist in this gospel of John saying twice. When he sees Jesus, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin says, Behold the Lamb of God. And then later he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He wanted to make sure we didn't miss this connection at all. That there was a lamb who was going to be sacrificed and it was Jesus Christ in our place. God wanted us to see something through this story that would become a very, very vivid picture for us to understand. That there would be a substitutionary atonement, a death in our place, that Christ would die in my place, in your place. But it's not just a sacrifice in the simple sense of the word. You see, every culture sacrificed. But God demonstrated here how Jesus would die in our place so we wouldn't have to take on the wrath of God. Jesus absorbed that on the cross. God had set the standard and then God did something amazing. He met the standard. But this story also teaches us something about faith in ourselves. When God spoke to Abraham and instructed him to do something, Abraham did it every time. Go back and look at his life. Without fail, when God speaks to Abraham, the answer is always, here I am. And God says, leave your land where you know and move. And he goes, sure. And he takes off. When God says, I I want you to do this, he says, sure. When God says to him, even here, I want you to take your son and sacrifice him, he did it. And we may sometimes wonder, like, well, why would he do that? Well, let's remember something. Abraham is living without the Bible in his hands. He doesn't have the law of God. He predates all of these things, right? He's not walking around with the scripture like we are. And so it's an interesting thing because all around him, people were offering their children to deities. There's a learning experience here, isn't there? God was saying, I'm doing something different. You're not going to please me by offering your son. That's not how it's going to be. You'll please me when you have faith to do something, and I will provide the way. God was showing that he was different. In this case, this faith was on display to trust God to the utmost. He knew every promise God had ever made to him lied in Isaac's life. It was right there. It was upon Isaac. And so this was a huge thing. He had to have all of this running through his mind as they climbed that mountain together. And yet, what did he do? He obeyed. He was faithful. God said, go, he went. God said, do, and he did. And most importantly, God said, stop, and he stopped. Some writers have wondered if this faith test originated because Abraham had become too attached to Isaac. Had his affection for his son grown to a place where it outshined his affection for the Lord uh, that had called him God, that had called him out? The scripture doesn't say that. Maybe. We don't know. But it's a, uh, an instructive thing for us to think about this morning because God seems to do that in every one of our lives. As we come to the Lord, we have to set aside our agendas. We have to set aside our affections for other things. And we have to to, to come to the Lord with open arms 
and open hands and say, you are God, I am not. You're the Lord, I am not. And what you say, I will do. How you ask me to live, I will live. I look to the word of God. I look to the character of Christ. And that's how I'm going to live my life. We are consistent with those things. So that when God says to live purely, we live purely. When God says to speak truthfully, we speak truthfully. When he calls us to go, we go. But faith will also require those things that we hold dearest to us to be laid down. Some of us are holding on to some very dear desires. We got to lay them down. We'll have to choose between following God and loving things more than God. I think it's really important that as we see this, as we think about Easter, we remember something. It's a picture, right? A true story that paints a picture. It's the best kind of illustration there is. Could you imagine with me for a minute the day of your death and what judgment might look like? Could you imagine what it might look like to stand in the court of the Lord? And for your name to be called. Next up, we have Jeff Mims. Hmm. Well, Jeff, when I look at my law, I see that you have violated so much of it. I've seen times where you lied, where you were selfish. It goes on and on and on and on. We could stand there, I'm sure, for hours. And the sentence is passed. Death. Death. Because the wages of your sin, Jeff, is death. But all of a sudden, there's a little bit of stirring in that room. Not unlike the stirring of a ram caught in a thicket. Trying to free itself. Maybe this time, though, it's the shuffling of some papers and a robe. And the Lord Jesus Christ stands up and says, Stop. I died in his place. That was me. He's mine. My blood has cleansed him. And like a good court, they seal the record. And no one ever has to hear about all the things that I've done ever again. Not even me. I don't have to listen to that anymore. I don't have to worry about that anymore. The record is sealed. And all that's written on it in red is saved. Saved by what though? The blood of Jesus shed for me. And as we think about Easter, that's what the substitutionary atonement means. It means that when you couldn't get to God, it was a bridge that had been broken down because of your sin. That Jesus Christ bridged that gap, dying in your place, in my place. But here's the question. Are you saved? Has the blood of Jesus cleansed you from every stain? 
Has there ever been a time in your life when you came before the Lord, looked at him and said, I fall on your grace? Because apart from you, I don't have a chance. The sentence is death, and I get it. God, would you forgive me? Would you save me? And let the blood of Jesus wash over me. The Bible says that anyone who does that will be saved. Anyone. You say, well, man, you just don't know, Pastor. You don't know where I've been living. True. We all have a story. Mine's too bad. Oh, can't use that excuse. We just come before the Lord and we fall at his feet. And the blood of Jesus, that red thread pictured for us here, washes over us. Now for those of us who are believers in the room, that ought to give us a new meaning and an understanding about Easter, shouldn't it? God will provide for himself the standard set and standard met through God. That ought to allow us to live in freedom, shouldn't it? I didn't have to pay for my sins. You don't have to pay for your sins. They've been washed in the blood of Jesus. It ought to let us live with a grateful expectation that what God has done for us, he will do for others. Right? We're no better than anyone else. When God saved me, he was just using me as an example that he can save anybody. When God saved you, he holds you up and says to someone else, I look at this guy, look at this lady. You think you're so bad? I saved them. I can do it in your life. And that lets us with grateful expectation then engage people with the gospel, doesn't it? So that they can know the power and the love of the blood of Jesus Christ. The lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? In just a moment, we're going to sing about this lamb. And I want to invite you as a church to sing with all of your heart with grateful expectation that this lamb slain for you still takes away the sins of the world. And it might be today that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would need just to take a moment and examine yourself. Have you been living worthy of the blood that saved you? Are you thankful this morning that Jesus died in your place? Maybe you're here today and you've never been saved. First time you've ever heard it. That there was a God who sent his own son, the son he loved, to die in your place, in my place. You can be saved today. The Lamb of God we're going to sing about is Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And if you would turn away from your sin and yourself and turn to Jesus this morning, he will save you. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. That's okay. Why don't you do something bold as we start to sing in just a moment. Step out of your seat. Walk down this aisle and take me by the hand.
And I'll make sure we answer every question that we can possibly answer today so that you can know the love of the Savior who died in your place. Heavenly Father, we celebrate today the Lamb who died in our place. Thank you, Lord, for doing a work in our lives. Thank you for saving us from our sins. And we pray, God, what you have done in our lives, you do again in here today in someone else's life. We ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.